Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm Josiah. You join us for our third and final interview focused on the gospel embodied. Our previous guests were Pastor Emily Taylor and Pastor Eric Paul, who helped us better understand what it looked like for the gospel to not stop solely with a focus on the afterlife. And we continue this conversation with today's episode, asking some simple questions about how the gospel can be a holistic good news for all of life. To help us with this, we are interviewing the author of Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness, Kevin Nye. When he's not writing books, he is the housing director at YouthLink Minnesota, which is a nonprofit that helps 16 to 24-year-olds with everything from completing their GAD to the basics like housing and food. And while I will call Kevin a guerrilla pastor for the work he is doing, helping us better understand what the gospel looks like embodied, he is in fact not a licensed minister. But we'll get more into that in his interview. So without further delay, here is our interview of Kevin Nye. Our guest today is... Uh... Well, maybe it's debatable if we should even call you a guerrilla pastor. Uh, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about where you're at, what you do in life? And then we're going we're gonna to start to talk about that pastor thing probably here in a minute. But give us a little bit about who you are. Sure. Yeah. My name is Kevin. I am neither a guerrilla nor a pastor. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, yeah, I, um, I grew up uh, planning to be a pastor and uh pursued all that in the the church of the nazarene denomination uh and uh things happen life took a turn and now i work in uh, homelessness services um and i've written a book about that hmm. he has written a book about it and i'm confident that'll come up at some point in our conversation but if not i'll make sure we'll come back to it uh so kevin we're going to start with a question that might feel a little bit out of left field, but we've done this with all of our guests previous. Can you just give me a summary uh, uh, to the best of your recollection, what gospel meant, what the word gospel meant as you were growing up in what might be conceivably a stereotypical evangelical home, church, community? Yep. Um, I would say Jesus died for your sins. Um, and, and if you accept that wonderful gift, then you can experience a great and eternal life. So it was, it was a little bit eternally focused. Uh, the, the gist of it, the point of it was there was still an eternal focus there. Yeah. And I think, you know, at least what I got in my home church wasn't, it wasn't very hellfire and brimstone, right? Um, and that's not to say it wasn't essentially fear-based, but it was it was really mostly focused on the like the positive aspects, like Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you. You need to return that favor, <laughs> um, <laughs> pay it for and, it, <laughs> and if you do, these are the good things that you know you get out of that. You kind of chuckle at it, and we we always ask a follow-up question to this initial question we ask it a couple different ways but the way uh the way i like to ask it is when did that start to break down for you this understanding of gospel when did it stop maybe holding water when did you start to have questions about 
a, a facet or a part of it? And uh, what was going on in, in your life that caused you to start to say, hey, is this, is this all that gospel means? It's interesting because I sort of, I remember, and you probably, I'm sure you experienced this too, where like there was such a strong youth group culture during our time coming up. Like maybe, maybe the height of what youth group culture was, was when we were there. Not because of us. But, no, the, know, it was the, we the period of time. Yeah, the period of time yeah. we grew up in. And it, I mean, we both grew up in Arizona as well. And Arizona had a pretty strong youth representation as far as our denomination went, period, as well. Yeah. And so there was kind of the sense that, like, once you got into youth group, you were kind of like not rebelling against the larger church, but like you were like the youth pastor kind of had a different way. <laughs> of talking about it and like you would go to youth camps and you'd hear the gospel presented in ways that never outright said like your senior pastor is an idiot like <laughs> and or or your senior pastor has it wrong this is what it really is but there was sort of this like uh inherent very felt thing where it was like our generation sees things a little bit differently and the church is sort of making space for that, but also kind of doesn't like it, but also they're okay with it kind of thing. And so it was sort of like, I don't know, looking back, it almost feels like they were like conducting an experiment and like controlled deconstruction. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> Where it was like, I in youth group, I would hear so much more about like, it's all about love. It's all about God's love. Like we need to keep the focus on love, not on the judgment. Like all the and whereas like you might hear more judgment or like oh it's a two sided coin in you know adult church but in youth group it's like no it's all about love and this like like radical discipleship and Jesus freak like like all of that stuff and so that so I feel like I sort of got already like trained in this idea of the you know my parents faith. Like I was inheriting it, but also had some freedom to to play around with it, you know. But but at that time, only in very controlled, like <laughs> scientifically, uh, like like an experiment with very few variables, <laughs> kind of way. There were some parameters to what you could ask questions yes. about. Here is the box within which you can deconstruct yeah, yeah exactly the deconstruction manual was i've never i mean it makes sense i i relate to that i can i can empathize with that but i would have never thought to call it the pre-approved parameters for how much deconstruction can take place within <laughs> what we have considered the gospel message to be yeah. at some point though i know you've probably written about this spoken about this but can you give me uh, a little bit of the story of how you go from youth group to then pursuing a calling in ministry. Yeah. So I, and those actually overlap um, a lot. I, I experienced what I would think of as my call to ministry in seventh grade, which is pretty early yeah. um, compared to most. Um, so I was, I was all in on it, like already through all of, all of youth group, all middle school and high school. Um, and so by the time I graduated high school, 
I had planned on going to Point Loma and then my parents told me that wasn't going to happen because it was too expensive. So I ended up at Southern Nazarene. Um, and <laughs> is that the budget Nazarene school? Is that what we just basically called it so, inadvertently? I mean, kind of. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was the cheapest, but it was half the price of Point Loma. Oh my so, goodness. So it was, I don't know if it was the budget one or Point Loma. It was just like the Bentley of Nazarene schools, you know, yeah, that's probably more accurate. Um, so yeah, so I ended up Southern Nazarene doing theology and ministry degree. Um, and yeah. And so kind of some more deconstruction happened there. The box within which deconstruction could happen was widened. And also I had a lot more exposure to, to more stuff and, and, and writers, you know, I, cause also, again, it's such a specific time period, but by the time I graduate high school and I'm in college, this whole um, emergent church movement thing is happening. And so you've got your, like your Rob Bell is just starting out writing his book. You've got Shane Claiborne, like, becoming a name like donald miller is writing stuff before he goes and becomes a crazy person uh <laughs> brian mclaren like is actually like he's written a bunch of books but nobody's read them he's writing books that people are reading now mm-hmm. um like all of this is converging at the time i'm in college and being like moderately encouraged to read some of this stuff like i was actually in my freshman intro to ministry book uh, there was this big list of books we could choose, like two or three that we had to read and take notes on, and Velvet Elvis is on that list. And I read Velvet Elvis, and I see like, oh, he's referencing this person. I'm going to go check out his book and always building this Amazon wish list and mm. filling it up. And like I, you know, when I'm not reading the stuff I'm supposed to read for school, I'm reading more. And then over the summers, I'm just like devouring more and more and i'm listening to rob bell's sermons that he's doing at mars hill because again i'm just like oh this is this is that next iteration of these people are doing something with this faith and this gospel that's different and feels truer to my my experience of of life and feels more like i just felt more felt more right Mm -hmm. and i think i just kind of always kept pursuing that what what felt more right and more more true and i had amazing professors and i joke that like i got radicalized in a rural town (laughs) in oklahoma which is like literally the reddest state in the states yeah um but like had an old testament professor who you know preached the prophets and like uh just got so much great exposure that um and very few uh very few of them were really like reining us in like no don't oh no can't don't go down that road um there was just there's still a lot of openness in that academic setting you know at the same time i was i was being uh i called it a witch hunt i mean it basically was there were pastors that were that were being almost put before tribunals at churches I served in for reading those books. This is not something we read. And it's because it it confronted some of what we're talking about, right? Like it challenged some of that hyper-individualized approach to what receiving salvation looks like and what salvation is for and what the gospel actually is or isn't. 
So continue on on this journey with me and tell me a little bit, because what I like to ask next is how did this change your relationship with with maybe church folk, folk you grew up with, family? Like what you're reading these things. Some folks probably have strong feelings about them. What did that do to change your engagement with what you had grown up with as far as the church goes, the people that you attended church with? Yeah. So I think what what unfortunately happened was, you know, folks were actually pretty interested in the way that I was talking about theology and scripture differently. Like that didn't ruffle a ton of feathers because I mean, even like, you know, early Rob Bell is like published by Zondervan and like yeah. suggested by my pretty conservative freshman intro to ministry uh, professor. Cause this before he wrote love wins, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so there was an aspect where like, you know, that, that was really welcomed in a way that I like appreciated. Uh, but but the moment that it impacted politics, like, and that's where like the Shane Claiborne of it all is where really started to get me in trouble. And like the moment that I was like, yeah, I actually think that like everything, the way that my theology is changing means that like, I can't support the death penalty. And I have strong anti-war feelings about what we're doing in Iraq. And, mm-hmm. um, but it, the, and that's where it was like, whoa okay, now we're starting to have a problem, you know? Uh, and that was, and that was just the beginning <laughs> of, you know, what, uh, how my, my politics were shifting and, um, and my theology, my theology, and my politics were just kind of in a constant, you know, state of evolution, you know? And, um, but, as much as the like the theology stuff was sort of okay as long as it you know as long as it ended up coming back to the same place really because you know i think you and this is something that i'd love to dig into more that i'm sure you talk about a lot on this podcast that there's a way in which like two people can say the same thing and mean two completely different things right especially in church and so there's a way when you're like trying to be the pastor who's like uh i need to not get kicked out but i want to try to challenge things you can you can say a a sort of like creedal statement like yes i do believe that jesus died for my sins Mm -hmm. um and but if you were to actually explain what you mean when you say that it would be completely different than what you know the 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 board wants you to mean when they say it but you can still say it yeah. You know, but it's when you get to the implications of that on on your life and how you organize yourself in the world with other people that that's where you can't can't think it as much. Hmm. So is is that where the the rubber meets the road as far as you said this at the beginning, you almost became <laughs> a Nazarene pastor. So yeah. is how you embody how you chose to to see the gospel touch every facet of your life connected with what ultimately became your decision to not pursue ordination? Yeah, so, yeah, I was really far along in the process. I'd, I'd done my course of study, like, was well past it, and I did seminary on top of it, so just in case they didn't think I was educated enough. Um, you know, I 
if I had gone back and dug up all the hours I did, I could have made the case that I had my hours done too. Um, and I was in the process of doing that and I was coming before my annual district recertification, you know, for my district license in, in Southern California. And, and it's getting a little like inside baseball here. Like I technically had to have like a pastoral appointment to be, have my district license. But at that point I was already doing homeless services for a, a not faith-based nonprofit. And so my church, who is you know, very progressive, like church on the district, kind of like the black sheep of the district in that way, um, said like, yeah, we'll make you a pastor. Like you you do stuff around here, like you lead. Like I was involved in my church. We weren't just like slipping me on the roster or anything. <laughs> but they're like, we, we'll call you the associate pastor of justice. That's <laughs> like, that's perfect. Yeah, I love it. Get it. Like that's my dream, my dream title right there. Um, and so then I sat before the, the, you know, the district advisory board for my annual recertification. And they saw that and they're like, Oh, let's, let's talk about what that means. And this is also 2016. So supercharged political climate, like Trump's going to be elected like five months from then. So obviously like that's all in the air. Um, and actually, before I even went in for that interview, the district secretary saw that and just started like grilling me for no good reason on it. So I was already on edge going in to my interview. Um, and so so I go in and they're talking about that. And like, we're vibing. Like, I'm saying my things. They're saying their things. They're asking me a weird question. I do like a nice little jujitsu move to deflect it to what Pirouette. I want to talk about. Like, we're we're doing our thing, and then one of them asked me, um, "So what do you do when, you know, what our culture considers like an important social justice movement that doesn't align with the church?" And I said, "Well, you give me an example of what you mean." <laughs> uh, and he said, "Well." You know, let's talk about like homosexuality. The culture sees this as a justice issue um, for you know people who have same-sex attraction and want to be in same-sex marriages. Uh, but the church clearly teaches that 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 is not acceptable. So how do you balance you know cultural social justice with you know the, the Bible's demands and expectations and um, Quite frankly, by that time, I was I was already LGBTQ affirming, um, and I was keeping that on the down low. Um, I was I was not going to ever lie about it or not be honest about it, but I wasn't going to bring it up if they weren't either. Sure, <laughs> you know. And then they brought it up, <laughs> so you know, I I was like, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of dancing, but I'm not going to. I'm I'm not going to be dishonest either. So I said, you know, I I think that um, the more I've I've spent time with people who, who are part of that community, and the more you know, I've looked into scripture on this. This this feels like an issue that's not fully settled. Uh, I know the church the church is settled on this, but I also know that every four years the church gets together and decides to rethink of the things that were supposedly settled on. So. Um, for me, you know, 
for me, the Bible says a lot of stuff about women in ministry. The, the Church of the Nazarene is very clear that women can be ordained as pastors, um, despite some things in in some of the letters of Paul and Second Timothy. So to me, this is one of those issues that I, I hope to keep learning more about and discerning on, and I hope that the church is open to doing that. And, and they, didn't love, they didn't love it. <laughs> they didn't love that um, answer. They didn't love it. They weren't as in love with that answer as I was. Um, and, but it got dropped for that conversation. Um, and then later, I was called to meet with the district superintendent and we talked about it and it wasn't it wasn't a rude conversation he was really gracious uh but basically his message to me was you know i didn't like how you conflated those two things because you know on one the church is very clear on it and essentially he told me you know the church of the nazarene isn't going in the direction you wanted to on that issue and he actually he gave me a a pretty good explanation as to why that i thought was fascinating um but the the crux of the conversation was if this is what you believe you will never be ordained and uh he said i am going to push push through this year that you continue being a district licensed minister we're not kicking you out but basically you've hit the ceiling of where you're going to go in this denomination and do with that what you will. Hmm. So the, the one wrong answer almost disqualified you from ordination in the first place. And then uh, you actually, we could talk about this for a second too, I suppose you write this in the introduction to your book, I believe sort of like what it was like to experience sitting through this Mm -hmm. gathering where you were supposed to be ordained. Right. Yeah, that's that sucked. Um, so yeah, so after after a few months of discernment and therapy, um, <laughs> or I was already in therapy and was like, "Hey, we're going to be talking about this for the next three months because because <laughs> I have to make this decision." And it's honestly like the most gut wrenching, anxiety inducing thing I've ever dealt with in my life. So we're doing that, uh, and we did, and my goal going into the decision was I, w- I do want to make a decision. I don't want to keep drawing this out. Um, Cause in some ways I'd been drawing it out for a long time and that my theology had changed in ways I knew that Nazarenes weren't going to be super comfortable with. And so it was only a matter of time before something happened. It was just a question of like, would I have already snuck in the door and gotten ordained? And then they found out because <laughs> there's less that they can do in that situation, right? It's almost like uh, tenure, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I said, like, I want to make a decision on this, and I don't want that decision to be based. I don't want it to be because I'm angry, um, and I don't want it to be because I'm afraid of of what the implications of it were for, like, having to explain to my parents, having to, you know, let down a bunch of people who you know who thought that i was going to be you know the next great nazarene youth pastor or whatever yeah um so yeah so that's what it did and the decision i came to was that i willingly stepped away from the ordination process um, but i continued at my church because i loved my church and for me that meant 
trying to still be part of the denomination. So I still went to that year's district assembly. The only the only service I could go to was the ordination one because it's the only one that was in the evenings and I worked. Um, and yeah, so I sat through the ordination service of of folks and just kept thinking like that that could have been me <laughs> had just one thing gone differently or you know maybe maybe it would have been next year but like this is the like I was I was having a hard time not putting myself up there and like listening to the the affirmations that they made and just keep keeping thinking like I could say all that like everything they're asking of these ordinands I can affirm and again I might mean it slightly different than it's being asked but like I can affirm all those things uh, but I'm but I'm on the outside looking in just because they happen to ask me the question at the time, you know. Well, it, it strikes me as is almost an obvious duh sort of a thing, like the shift that was taking place within you. It wasn't an isolated thing, right? You're not the right. only person that this was happening with. And and oftentimes I feel this tension of the church is being left behind, left in the dust, because it, it sometimes would rather stick its fingers in its ears and go, la, 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 and not engage with some of the actual conversations that are happening outside of its four walls that it should be better equipped to have within its mm -hmm. own four walls. Uh, and so, I mean, after this, you're not ordained. You eventually... I, I suppose, you, did you surrender credentials? Were they taken? I mean, there's like a, there's a, a process I know that goes into all this stuff. So what happened after that? Just briefly. You know, um, I don't know if there's one that's supposed to happen, but it didn't. For you me. just, you're just not district licensed anymore, basically. Yeah. I mean, I assume so. <laughs> yeah. You've not, um, you've not had to have a follow-up conversation. It just lapsed probably, huh? Yeah. I, I sent an email saying you know um that i was stepping away entirely from the process of ordination i don't know if i included in that that like i won't be renewing my district license either but it was either in there or implied right um, sure well and, and how how i phrase it and you're already doing the work that you have continued to do um yeah. right you're doing homeless services and reading between the lines hearing you talk about it that sounds like a fulfillment of some sort of calling that could be considered ministry, right? And I'm Absolutely. having you, and I have you on this podcast, and it feels like I'm rubbing lemon juice into an open wound <laughs> of calling you a guerrilla pastor when you were this close to the whole thing. You've written a book about it. It it, it touches on the theological ramifications of homelessness, right? Grace will, Grace. Oh, I'm forgetting the whole subtitle. I need to open. What's the title of your book? Uh, it's Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. I should have had it open so I could read it. But I'm on, okay. a, I'm on a train of thought. I'm sorry. I derailed myself. Okay. Tell me now about gospel, what it means to you, um, and, and if you see it embodied differently in the day-to-day -day of what you do with, with this ministry that is a service to homeless folks. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I got into this work because of my faith, you know, and it's because my my faith has led me to believe that um, the world 
our humanity isn't whole until we've, you know, taken care of the least of these. Um, and that our our destiny as people, as as humans, is is all tied up together. Um, and so, for me to to be involved with with homelessness is to say that, um, you know, God. God counts you all <laughs> among, you know, God's blessed, you know, like the reading the Beatitudes, you really get the sense that like, it's not just, oh, the, the poor should be blessed. Like, no, no, they are, they are. <laughs> um, and so I, I think there's a part of me that sort of resists the idea of, of trying to distill the gospel down now like like almost like the distillation of it is part of the problem but if i had to um i think it's i think it's human flourishing and and what it actually costs us to to get there but also the the joy that's on the other side of that uh, because to me, you know, the the fact that we exist in a world where, you know, some of us are have way more than we need and others have way less than they need, like that's already just very obviously not not right and not as God intended. But I think really tied up in that is that there is also like just a general like unhappiness for everyone in that setup, right? That like the people who don't have the resources that they need to thrive, you know, face serious like barriers to a full and flourishing life. And yet in other ways, and this is a lesson that I've, I've learned over and over again, spending time with people experiencing homelessness, like they're actually in touch with an internal like resilience and joy and community that's only possible because they are not so like they have been uh, detached from this, this rat race that the rest of us are in where we've sort of lost our humanity in the, the acquisition of, of things and, and power and um, this, this sort of myth of, of safety and security that we, that we built so much of our lives on. And so for me, the, the gospel is, is a subversion of that that says, like, we have to reorient society in a way that allows those who are extremely marginalized to, to have what they need. And it costs those of us who have more than we need a lot. We have to, we have to give up a lot and we have to give up more so the notion that we uh, deserve it or that we're entitled to it. But it's not just this like asceticism where we're like lashing ourselves on the back, you know, throughout the rest of our lives, but actually that like in that equalization, in that like, in that transfer of power, uh, we actually all become in touch with what brings true joy, which is like community without 
power dynamics, which is like celebration and uh, abundance. The gospel is good news for all because it stands up for the oppressed. It frees the captives and the blind can receive sight because the gospel is nothing if it's not just. Kevin Nye's ministry, this ministry focused on human flourishing, is one that is both intriguing but challenging to our status quos. Many of us, especially in Western culture, really enjoy being comfortable, safe, and content. Yet, affirming his claim that human flourishing is at the core of the gospel challenges the societal dynamic, and it brings numerous questions to the surface about how we should live our lives, especially when we consider the injustices that happen in the world all around us. We thank Kevin Nye for his willingness to share his life with us on today's episode, and we thank you as well for listening. In the coming weeks, we will release a premium and full-length, unedited version of today's episode, where you will get a chance to hear more from Kevin Nye, both his theological thoughts on the work he does with homelessness and the ministry of the church in general. You'll also hear Wardlaw, Fasani, and I sit around a table and discuss everything that we've heard in his story. So as always, we would ask that you would rate, review, and subscribe so that you don't miss out. And if you haven't yet, be sure to check our website out, guerrillapastors.com. I'm your host, Josiah, and this is the Guerrilla Pastors Podcast. <laughs>